In this episode, I want to help you walk by faith by understanding what faith actually means. You're listening to Onward in the Faith with Ray Burns. Ray is dedicated to equipping Christians to understand why they believe what they believe so that they can keep moving onward in their faith toward maturity in Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry financially, visit patreon.com slash onwardinthefaith. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. And make sure you visit onwardinthefaith.com where you can read hundreds of articles about every area of the Christian life. Now here's Ray with today's topic. As followers of Christ, faith is kind of central to our lives and everything we do. We, we talk about having faith, we talk about living by faith, but there's times where someone will ask us, what does faith actually mean? You talk about it a lot, what is it? And we come up with very different answers when asked. So some might say that faith is just having a belief in something that we can't see, or it might be just having a hope in, in whatever it is you have faith in, you know, hoping that it will work. Or people might see faith as having some kind of an inner strength, you know, having faith in yourself or having faith which gives you some kind of peace or, or joy or contentment inside of you. And in a way, faith has kind of become this really nebulous term where everyone talks about it and everyone wants to have it, but maybe not a lot of us understand fully what it means. And that's not to say that we don't have faith, but I believe that if we fully understand what faith means, we're going to see how much faith is actually supposed to play a part in our everyday life. And really, as we'll discuss, that everyone has faith in something. Everyone acts and walks by a faith in something almost every moment of their day. But when it comes to actually talking about faith, here's how we often want to define it, is that faith is just trusting something without any proof that it exists. And this episode actually comes with really interesting timing because as I was preparing it, I actually had a comment on social media that said something to the effect of, you know, if you had proof that God existed, you wouldn't need to have faith. And that's really telling, I think, of how a lot of the world views faith, is faith is just this kind of blind walk into nothingness and hoping that there's something there. You know, it's it's putting a blindfold on our eyes and taking steps forward, hoping that the floor is there to catch us. And that's a really dangerous way to think about faith, because in a way, it tells us to turn our brains off. It says that, you know, you can have faith in God, and I can have faith in Zeus, and this person can have faith in the moon being a god, and we can all have that same kind of faith. And as Christians, that's really dangerous, because we have much more than just an internal hope or a belief or a feeling to give us hope in the death and resurrection of Christ and to make us live lives of faith. Now, in my experience, though, when talking to Christians who are, are understanding and are in their Bibles a lot, and that you ask them what faith means, a lot of times they'll respond by quoting Hebrews 11.1. 1. And I actually want to quote this in two different Bible versions. I will use the New American Standard, which is the one that I typically use, and then I also want to use the King James Version. And I'll explain why that is in a little bit. So the New American Standard says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then in the King James, it says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now, here's the problem when you ask a Christian what faith means and their immediate response is, oh, well, it's the substance of things hoped for, is that doesn't actually say anything to the person asking. And sometimes the person quoting it doesn't 
exactly know maybe what it means or what it's saying. And beyond that, we need to understand what does Hebrews 11.1 1 actually mean in our lives? What does that look like day to day on a practical level? Because Hebrews 11.1 1 is obviously a definition, right? It That word is there. Now, faith is acts as kind of an equal sign. So faith equals assurance of things hoped for. And faith equals the conviction of things not seen. But it almost seems like a riddle. What what exactly does all that mean? And so in this episode, the big thing we're going to talk about is what is faith? What does it mean? And I want to use Hebrews 11.1 1 really as our foundation for that discussion, because I do think it defines faith perfectly. And I think that it matches everything we see throughout the Bible when it talks about people having faith. It's just going to take us a little bit to dig in to understand what's really going on here. And then when we understand what faith means, I want to look at some biblical examples. I want to use a chair to help us understand faith and then really just top this off with, okay, what does this mean for us today? So before we start, I want to frame our discussion on faith. I want to start off by saying that faith is not blind. It's not hoping in something that we can't see and have no evidence for. So our faith in God is different than someone's belief in a Greek God, for example. From there, I want us to understand that faith is trusting in something unknown or unseen, actually based on evidence. And that might sound kind of scientific and nerdy, and it might even feel like it removes the teeth from our faith. But actually, as we'll see, God really calls for us to use our minds in order to know and trust him and to use our minds as part of our faith. Because faith ultimately is a result of us glorifying God with our mind, not with our emotion. So with that said, let's really dig into this Hebrews 11.1. 1. So I want to start with the first words there where it talks about how faith is the assurance or faith is the substance. And this is why I wanted to use both the New American Standard and the King James, because without getting too deep into biblical interpretation methods, a lot of times a language will use words in a way where they have a bigger meaning attached to them that don't transfer over very well into our English. And so whenever the Bible translators would take something in the Greek or the Hebrew and try to make it into an English word, sometimes they would have to pick from a, a number of different words that all make sense but don't quite capture perfectly what's being said there. Now, if you don't know what I mean, I want to use the German language as an example because German has a certain beauty to it where they have all of these really neat words that conveys an entire thought and it's distilled down into a single word. So one word I want to give as an example before we continue on is the word schadenfreude. I apologize if you speak German. I clearly do not. But if we were to take the word schadenfreude and use it in, as an English translation, what this word actually conveys is that idea of whenever we take pleasure or find enjoyment in someone else's suffering or someone else's misfortune. So, for example, whenever at work we are watching someone give a presentation and they really bumble it up or mess up and we find a, a certain sick glee in that, or when we're on the road and there's someone who cuts us off and then up ahead they get pulled over for speeding or something and we drive by and just give that little smirk, you know, happy that they got theirs, or 
if there's an unpleasant coworker at our office and they're getting yelled at, even though it has nothing to do with us or our problem with them, just knowing that they're getting theirs just feels good. That's what schadenfreude is. Now, I bring that up for one reason. If we were to try to take the word schadenfreude from a sentence and try to translate it into English as a single word, we wouldn't really be able to do that, right? We might be able to say that someone was experiencing sadism or someone was experiencing cruelty or someone was enjoying comeuppance, but there's no one single word that really captures it. And so when we're looking at this Hebrews 11.1, I think there's value in looking at the different ways that translators have chosen to pick a single word to try to express what's being said here. Because when we take both translations, I think it gives us a much bigger picture than just a single one. So when the New American uses the word assurance, what that gives us is that connotation and that idea of something that we can rest in. We are assured that we are safe. We are assured that there's something there. Uh, It gives us the idea of confidence. You know, whenever you aren't sure about something, the opposite of that is to be confident in something. And so it's, it's being assured that what you're doubting is okay. And ultimately, assurance is this idea of trust in spite of doubt. So right now, we have a lot of businesses who are assuring people that they're taking safety precautions to prevent any unnecessary risk or exposure to illness or viruses. And so here, when it's talking about faith is the assurance of things hoped for, what it's conveying there is that idea that when we have faith, it means that we are assured, we are confident, we are trusting that something is true in spite of our doubts. So faith isn't the idea that we are completely doubtless, 100% confident no matter what. It's the understanding that despite our doubts, we believe anyway. Not because something doesn't exist, as we will talk about, but that, you know, we can't see that, for example, air is around us right now. We, we don't walk into a room and say, oh, I, I need to make sure that there's actually oxygen in here for me to breathe. But we trust that there is. We walk into a room and we take breaths without thinking about it. And that's that same idea is that even though we can't see it, we are confident that it's there. And then the King James's translation of substance adds a lot to that, I think, because substance is really what something is made of, right? It's the stuff of an object. And here it even gives that idea of a foundation, right? It's, it's what something is built on. So when it talks about faith being the substance of what we're hoping for, it means that when we hope for something, that intrinsically is faith. It's, that's what faith is made out of, is our hope. And hoping in something is the very definition of faith. But the thing that we need to be careful of is, again, not to treat this as a sort of a blind faith. Because none of us have belief in something's truth if we don't think it's, for some reason, worth trusting. Right. So if you are someone who, say, doubts absolutely everything said by the government, if they say something, you're not going to suddenly have faith in what they're saying because you already find them untrustworthy. At the opposite end, if you believe that the government is trustworthy or at least trustworthy enough, then you're more likely to accept what they say and believe that what they're saying is true because you find them to some degree to be trustworthy. And so ultimately... When we're thinking about faith, it really comes down to faith is the evidence that we believe in something. 
And that pulls us very nicely into the next part of this verse, which goes on to give another idea or definition of faith. And that is to say that it is the conviction or evidence of things not seen. And so this immediately brings to our minds legal terminology, right? Conviction, you know, convicting a criminal, you know, having evidence against them. Those are those are words that conjure up very specific things in our minds. And I think that that's useful for our discussion because the Christian life is full of things that are not seen and are not known. So Christ's death and resurrection, we don't actually have concrete evidence that that happened. None of us have actually seen it happen. We have faith that it happened. We can't actually see and prove and test that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us today and that it's him who convicts us of sin and makes us more like Jesus Christ. However, based on evidence, we are convicted of that truth that he's within us. And furthermore, the belief that we have that God will keep his promises in the future. So he has promised that if we call upon the name of the Lord, we will be saved. That he was satisfied with Christ's sacrifice on the cross for our sins. God has promised us that that was sufficient, that Christ alone is enough for our salvation. All we have to do is put our faith in what he did. But we don't know that God's going to keep his word. We can't prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that God won't go back, that God won't change. But yet we believe it. We hang our entire eternal destiny on God keeping his word that he's given us in the Bible. And so what does that mean for us when it comes to faith? Well, if we think about it again in a legal setting, so in a courtroom, you need to have enough evidence to make a decision on something. If someone has broken the law, you cannot convict them until you have enough proof that they did what you say they did. Now, when it comes to our faith, faith is sort of that evidence. It's that proof that not only shows that we believe in something, but that that something we believe in is actually active and working in our lives. And so it not only acts as evidence, in other words, it, us having faith not only proves that something is there, but how our faith affects and transforms our lives is also proof. It's, it's what convicts us in a legal sense that, yes, they are guilty of believing in God because of how they live by faith. And so if I was a lawyer and I was looking at your life and saying, I need to find enough evidence to call you guilty of trusting in Jesus Christ, the only thing I could look at would be your faith, not your words, not your beliefs even, not the things you say or the things that you do, but the why of all of it. Why do you say what you say? Why do you do what you do? And when we get down to it, that is how we know what faith is and whether we are actually living by faith or if we are saying and doing things without true faith in Jesus Christ. And so kind of understanding that, that faith is the evidence or the proof that we are believing in something. What actually then is faith? Because that gave us kind of a, a broad term, but what does faith actually mean? And we need to realize that faith is more than just believing in something. And that's where I think in our modern culture, we really twist the idea of faith and really water down how incredible it is and how much it actually transforms our life. Because Hebrews 11.1, 1, it talks about faith as something that we can actually point to. And we can't point to beliefs. We can't point to emotions as evidence of something. 
that's something that we are experiencing, but that's not something that is concrete and obvious and clear. And so in order for us to really understand what faith means, what it looks like, the best thing that we can really do, I think, is to read Hebrews 11, right? We've, we've started with verse 1, and as we will continue reading, and I'm not going to read all of Hebrews 11, but I want to take three parts out of it, and as we'll continue seeing, faith isn't just a belief in God. It's not a feeling that he's real. It's not that feel-good emotion that we get. Because as I said at the beginning, we all actually live by faith. Even if you don't believe in God, every single person on earth exercises faith almost every moment of their lives. And to explain that, I want you to picture a chair. Now, I want you to picture a chair that is made as poorly as you can imagine. It is filled with splinters. It's got nails and screws sticking up at all angles. The seat is kind of wet and sticky and it's, it's made out of wax paper, and it looks like, if anything, a stiff breeze is going to blow it over before you even get to it. Now, picturing that chair, are you going to sit in it? Now, obviously not, right? Because you can, yes, you can see that a chair is there, right? If someone says, hey, point out a chair in this room, you could point to this ramshackle piece of garbage and say, well, that's a chair. So believing that the chair is there doesn't mean you're going to sit in it. Instead, what you want to do is you're going to examine that chair. You're going to look at it and say, no, I'm not going to sit down in this thing. Just because it is a chair doesn't mean that it's a chair I trust to bear my weight. It doesn't matter if I'm a toddler. That thing's not going to support anybody, right? Because we don't trust a chair that is unsafe. Now, instead, picture any other chair that you've probably experienced today. Maybe the one that you're sitting on right now. Now, we, when it comes to sitting down on chairs... We don't sit down unless we're convinced a chair is there. We need to see and know that, yes, a chair does exist. Now, if we have horrible friends or troublemaking children, maybe that chair won't be there when we do sit down. But when we sit, it's because we are trusting in that moment that a chair is behind us. Second, we will always examine a chair. We may not do it actively in our minds, but as we talked about with this busted up chair with a wax paper seat, We are going to, at least in the flash of a moment, examine that a chair seems like it's going to hold us and support us when we sit down. But it's not enough for us to say, I see a chair, it looks trustworthy. Boy, I sure wish I had a chair to sit down on. No, we don't prove that we trust in a chair until we actually sit in that chair, until we let it bear our full weight, until we give evidence that we believe that this chair will support us. And I think that this is a perfect demonstration of what faith in God looks like because all of our lives are based on faith and all of the faith that we have in anything in the world is based on using our minds. So let's look at how the Bible breaks down the chair example. So first I said that when we are talking about sitting down on a chair, we need to see that a chair is there. So if we're going to have faith that God exists, We need to be able to see and understand and believe that, indeed, he does exist, that he's not just a figment of our imagination, that there is a reason to believe in him. And we see this in Romans 1.20. For, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what was made, so that they are without excuse. So here we see that, People aren't going to be condemned because they didn't believe in something that there was no reason to believe in. Instead, when someone dies, they will be convicted 
of not believing in God because God will be able to say, you clearly knew I existed. You see everything that I created. You see all this evidence you have, whether it's physical, whether it's even your internal knowledge that there's something bigger out there. There is so much evidence in this universe that no one has an excuse not to die in belief in who God is and what Christ has done. And so we see here that faith in God has to start with knowing that he's there by looking at the universe, by reading the Bible and being convinced of what it says. Now, second is that we need to actually examine and make sure that God is worth following because we can see that our best friend exists, but that doesn't mean that we're going to dedicate our lives to following their teachings and doing everything that will live a life that pleases them, right? We need to actually see that God who exists is actually worth trusting and following and giving our lives for. And that's what David's talking about in Psalm 34, 8, where he says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. So faith has to come from an understanding in our minds, from being convinced of evidence, from being able to look at everything and being able to listen to our conscience. And especially the Holy Spirit's role is bringing us to that state of repentance and trust. And it's him that lets us see that, yes, I am a wretched sinner. I can do nothing to save myself. I know that God exists and that he has a perfect and holy law that I have broken every day of my life. But that's not enough. Because just because we believe that God's real, and even if we give lip service to the things taught, that's not enough. We need to have trust and actually sit down and put our full weight in reliance on Jesus Christ, in God, and letting our actions prove that what we say we believe, we actually believe. And we see this in James 2.17. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. So what James is, is telling us here is that our actions will demonstrate what we truly believe, not what we say we believe, not what we want to believe, but what we do is a direct result of what's truly in our hearts, what we are truly believing about the world. So understanding that faith starts with knowing that something is real and that it's worth trusting and that it will kind of be completed once we act. Let's look at three examples that Hebrews 11 gives us. So the first is in Hebrews 11:4 with Cain and Abel. It says, By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained his testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. So here, a very important thing to focus on is that fourth word there. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. So if you go back to Genesis and read the account of Cain and Abel, Abel saw that God was real. He believed that what God desired when it came to sacrifice was worth sacrificing. And so then Abel offered to God a sacrifice that was pleasing. Meanwhile, Cain obviously believed God was real. He saw that God wanted him to do something, but he didn't have the faith to give a sacrifice that God desired. Cain gave something that worked for him, something that he wanted to do, because he didn't want to fully commit to what he knew was right and true. And so through that, we see that Abel was considered righteous, and we can still talk about him because of his faith, whereas Cain always serves as our warning sign of what it looks like when we don't act in a way that matches with what we say we believe. 
Now, example number two, we find in Hebrews 11:7, which is Noah. It says, By faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. And so here again, we see that Noah was being warned by God about something that he had no concept of. Because back then, if you recall, rain had never actually hit the earth. Noah had no clue what it could mean that the entire earth could be covered by water. There was no concept to him of that because all he understood about water was probably standing water. Things like lakes or ponds or puddles. He understood what water was, but not that there could be so much of it that everything was going to die. But that didn't matter because Noah understood that God was real and Noah believed that God was worth following and trusting. And we see if we read the passage about Noah in Genesis that Noah was the only righteous man in all the world. So the whole world around him said, yeah, God might be real, but he's not worth obeying. What I want matters more. I want to please myself. I want to find my own happiness. I'm not going to find it with God. But Noah was different. Because Noah saw that God was real like everyone else, he knew what God desired and saw that God was worth trusting despite what the culture around him said. But that wasn't enough because it wasn't until God called him to do something and Noah acted that we can now talk about his faith. Because it was when he prepared that ark, when he built it, that he actually showed that the things that he was saying matched what he was going to do. Again, his faith was shown by his works, by his actions. And then lastly, we're going to talk about Abraham. And we see him in verses 8 through 10. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. So pause there. Here we see that Abraham was called and he obeyed. He went out even though he didn't know where he was going. God simply said, Abraham, go, and Abraham went. Because, again, he wasn't placing a blind faith in his emotions, saying, well, I really hope God's real. No, Abraham was confident that God was real and that God was worth obeying. And then we continue. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for a city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. So here we see the core of why Abraham did everything that he did. He was looking forward to where God was sending him because he wanted to go where God was. He wanted to go to the place whose foundation, whose architect was God. In other words, why did Abraham go out? Why did he dwell in tents? Why did he live as an alien? Because he was looking forward to the promises of God, because he knew without a doubt that whatever he wanted in life, whatever he thought was right, whatever doubts he may have, those weren't more important than what he was convinced was true, because Abraham had faith, and so he acted because of that faith. And so that's a big understanding of faith, and that might even be a little challenging if you've never understood faith in that way, that faith isn't an emotion. In fact, Faith may even be the opposite of emotion, because emotion is based on feelings and our personal interpretations, whereas faith is based on, really, our reason and our minds and the things that we can see and think through. And so, how should we let this understanding of faith affect us today? Well, first of all, it's important to understand that we can have many beliefs about something, 
but it's our actions that will show what we believe most. And so I want to explain this by going back to James chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. It says, But someone may well say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So pausing there, here James makes a very clear line that someone may say to him that you can have faith or you can have works, but they aren't hand in hand. But James is countering by saying, you can show me your faith that doesn't have any works, but I'll show you my faith by my works. Because remember what James said, that faith without works is dead. So it's not enough to have faith if there's not something that it spawns without having our actions generated from that faith. And so he goes on to say, you believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Pausing there again, here we see that belief is not enough. The demons, Satan, they believe that God is who he says he is. They believe that Christ died on the cross for sinners and was resurrected and that faith in him is what saves us. Them believing, I mean, them even seeing it doesn't matter because their actions show that despite what they believe, it doesn't affect them. It doesn't impact their actions and their beliefs. They are more than happy to live in rebellion to God and be his enemies and hate him and hate his creation. And, you know, as Christians, sometimes that can define us, I think, that we know God is real. We believe the things that he says in his word. And yet we want to follow the world. We want to follow our passions. We want to do what makes us happy rather than what pleases God. And in that, really show what we place our faith in. We place our faith in the world to satisfy us and not God. We place faith and confidence in our own happiness, telling us what's true rather than the Bible. But I digress. Continuing James, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. So there's a lot for that one to break down, but let's just pay attention to some bigger things happening in that last part of James. At the very end, it talks about how Abraham's faith was perfected by his willingness and his action to sacrifice his son on the altar because God had called him to do it. Now, perfected here doesn't mean that his faith was perfect. We'll see that Abraham was still a man who didn't live perfectly by faith. He didn't always listen and trust God. But when it talks about his faith being made perfect, it's the idea of it was completed, that the full circle of his faith was done, that he heard God give the command. He trusted that he should do it, but that didn't matter until he actually demonstrated that he had that faith. His faith wasn't complete until it was followed by action. And that's what really the whole book of James is about and why a lot of people kind of get it twisted and misconstrued that, well, is it our works that saves us? No, it's our works that prove that we are saved. We aren't saved by our works because that puts it on us to save ourselves. It insists that we are somehow good enough to please God, and we're not. Instead, faith and our faith-demanding works is a reality that I am saved. I am not good enough. I can't do this on my own. It's only through the Holy Spirit living within me, making me more like Jesus Christ, that I can do good. And because I love God, because I want to serve him, because I want to please him, I'm going to do these things, not to earn 
righteousness, not to earn favor, not to get something from God, but simply because how else could I possibly live my life except in a way that is loving God more than anything else? And that's what James is really talking about here. Because as Christians, we're called to live by faith in absolutely every area of our life. Sometimes we want to just box off faith and say, well, faith is a salvation thing. Once you have faith and you're saved, you're good. But no, we're called to live by faith in every area of our life. We're called to walk by faith and not by sight. In other words, we aren't called to live blindly and trust in things that we don't think are even true or real, but instead we are called to have enough evidence that even though there's things we aren't sure of, even though there are things that cause us to doubt, we still walk. Because even though we can't see exactly why we should be faithful to our spouse instead of giving in to what makes us happy, even though we can't see why controlling our tongue and not yelling at our kids or yelling at a coworker is pleasing to God, even though it would feel so good to do, even though we can't see how losing our job or getting sick or having a death in the family or getting cancer or whatever, even though we can't see how those things are good and why we should still love God and obey him and honor him, we still do it because we have faith that God is who he says he is. God is God. God is good. God is perfect. God is in control. He is sovereign. Whenever these things happen, whenever we are tempted towards sin or we are tempted to doubt or we question, why, God, are you doing this? Sometimes we will have to take steps that we can't see, but they're never completely blind because while we can't see the big picture of everything, we can see God. We can see Christ. We know that Christ is worth pursuing no matter what cost it comes to us. We see that our lives are his. We exist for his glory and not our own pleasure. And so we will sacrifice ourselves. We will devote ourselves to serving him. Because we have faith that he's worth it. And so let's try to break this down practically as I close it out. So what are some areas where we can demonstrate our faith? Or what are areas where we can walk by faith or we can say we have faith, but instead trust in something else besides God? Well, one area is how we spend our money. So if we know that any money we have is a good gift from God and that he calls us to use it well and to use it for his glory— then whenever we go on spending sprees or we buy something foolish or we have to hide our spending from our spouse, what we're really saying is that, yes, I know this is from God, but I don't trust him enough to use it well. I don't trust him to make me happier than what I could be buying. And so that's one area where we know God's real. We trust and believe that he's given us every good gift and every thing that we own is thanks to him and that it's for his glory. But it's only when we act in that way that our faith is complete, that we are actually walking by faith, not just believing things, but really putting our faith in something else to find satisfaction and to find salvation. Or in a bigger picture, really just our goal in life shows what we're placing our faith in. So if our goal in life is to make a lot of money and to be able to retire and rest and relax... That's what we put our faith in. That's where our hope lies. So every decision we make, we may say that, you know, we're loving God and we believe that he is ultimate and he is worth following. And we probably do believe that, but we're also believing something else. We're believing that true happiness is in money. True happiness is in comfort and an easy life and being able to rest. 
And so here we have two beliefs, but what our actions do shows us which belief we have the most faith in, which one we are allowing to change our lives and to affect us and to impact everything we do. Another goal in life might be to get married. And there may be people out there who you're unmarried or you're in a marriage, but you're unhappy. And you just sit there and think, you know, if I was just, if I just had just the perfect spouse, I would be happy. All my misery, all my misfortune, every negative thing in my life is because I don't have a spouse or because I do have one, but they're, they're worthless and they're selfish and they don't give me what I want. Now, we can believe that marriage is a good gift from God, but that it's not ultimate, that marriage is meant to glorify him. But how we respond and how we think about marriage shows where we're putting our trust and our faith. If we think that I would be happy if only I had a spouse or if only my spouse made me happier, if only they did what I want or if only they were more attractive, then what's that showing is that we are putting our faith and confidence in marriage, in our spouse to be our savior to please us, to give us satisfaction and safety and comfort. Now, there's absolutely nothing wrong with wanting to get married. There's nothing wrong with wishing that, you know, our spouse wasn't a sinner. But it's where we place that priority, where we place our hopes and our desires and our satisfaction in those things that shows where we're putting our faith. And then the American dream, you know, finding happiness, that can be our goal in life. And really, that's kind of pervasive everywhere in this country. In Christianity and outside of it, happiness is our ultimate goal. We think that if something isn't making us happy, it's not worth pursuing. It's not worth holding. And there's a lot of times in the Christian life we're not going to be happy. I mean, look at the apostles. They all died in very painful and bloody ways. They were tortured. They were chased out of cities. They were despised by everybody. And they could have stopped. They could have given in. They could have said, you know what? I don't want to be tortured. I don't want to be beheaded or boiled in oil. I don't want people hunting me down day and night. So, you know what? I believe in God, but I'm done. Their faith wouldn't allow them to do that. They believed that God was true. They believed the things of Christ. They believed that their lives were not their own, but that their lives belonged to Christ. And we know they believe that by how we see them live those lives, by how we see them walk to certain death with joy because they found Christ so much more important and so much more valuable than anything else in the world. So at the end of this, I hope that you're encouraged and challenged to make sure that when you're walking by faith, you're not walking by a blind faith or an emotional faith, but that your faith is informed. It's reasonable. It has a reason for you to mold your life around it. And so as you continue thinking on this, I want to really encourage you to just keep learning and keep studying and keep growing. Because the more we do that, the more we see the truth of God, the more we see how beautiful and amazing and incredible Christ is and why he is worth death. He is worth suffering. Why he is worth giving up our happiness for his glory. Because Christ is is so much more than anything else we could hope for in this life. And the more we understand that, the deeper our faith is going to be because the more grounded that faith is going to be. The more we understand Christ, the more we have reason to trust in him. And the more we trust in him, the easier it is for us to walk by faith because we see how glorious he is compared to how weak and pointless and fickle everything else in life is going to be. 
And so just remember, as you're thinking about faith, as you're continuing to walk by faith and reject those things that we want to put our trust in, remember that faith requires three things on our part. One, we need to be convinced that something is real. We need to believe that God exists. We need to trust that Christ paid the sacrifice for our sins. We need to believe that the Holy Spirit is given to us so that he can make us more like Christ. Then we need to examine Because just because something exists doesn't mean that it's trustworthy. So we need to examine. We need to dig in. We need to see, is God really worth trusting? Is he true? Is he good? Is he perfect? Is he the ultimate thing in the universe? Or is there something else that's more worthwhile for me to mold my life around and to pursue? And then when we're convinced of that, because if we have the Holy Spirit in us, of course we're going to be convicted that the ultimate God of the universe is, of course, the one worth following then it's important for us to take that last step to complete our faith by doing something about it, by doing what we know God wants us to do. And there's so many areas of our life where that's true, and it's impossible for me to cover them. But if you're listening, you know where God wants you to act in faith. You know what God is calling you to do or not to do. That up till now, for some reason, you've had all kinds of excuses to not obey. Walk by faith. Trust that God is worth it. Trust that if he calls you to it, you know it's a good thing. It may not seem good. You may not be able to understand how it's good. And maybe you won't see how it's good until we're with Christ in glory. But just keep walking by faith. Make the Bible your highest authority and your highest priority because you know and you're convinced that the Bible is trustworthy, that it truly is the word of God. Put God first, because we know that he deserves first place above anything else in the universe. Kill sin in your life and kill temptation, because you know that it's not worth placing your faith in, that it's not worth your actions to pursue. And as you're doing all this, as you're growing and walking in faith, keep asking the Holy Spirit to make you more like Jesus Christ. No matter the cost, no matter the doubt, ask him to make us more like Christ because we are convinced that Christ is worth pursuing more than anything else. Thank you for listening to this episode of Onward in the Faith. If you want to read more about what faith actually means, I've actually written a multi-part series that compares biblical faith with modern faith, and I'll link that down in the show notes. Down there, you will also find a link to my Patreon, where you can support this ministry for as little as $1 every month. Now, keep moving onward in your faith toward maturity in Christ.